publicly traded companies in particular should absolutely be looking at ephemeral messaging policies, what they have in place, how to manage this issue. This, man this issue is extremely difficult because in certain parts of the world, ephemeral messaging, however you want to define that, is used as the main way to do business. So there is a business justification, a legitimate business justification for using. It's not just, I think as some people think, this is a way to keep my conversations private. It's the way to do business. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of All Things Investigations. Today, I have back with me, Mike DiBernardis. Mike, first of all, welcome back. Happy to be back. I wanted to maybe bookend a couple of interesting informational releases, one in the form of an opinion release and one in the form of an enforcement action from the Securities and Exchange Commission we had over the past couple of weeks. And I want to start with the enforcement action because I thought that actually had a fair amount in it that not only is ripe for analysis, but also really some pretty good lessons for the compliance professional. And that was 3M in China. Probably just the words in China are enough to at least get people's hair up. But in the first or second paragraph said something was done secretly in an enforcement action, you, you know it's not going to be good going forward. So you want to take it from there and tell us about the facts, Mike? Yeah, of course. So 3M's China-based subsidiaries, they're all lumped together in the SEC order, had a process for taking Chinese government officials, these were officials from, from Chinese state-owned entities that 3M China was trying to make sales to, on trips. We've seen this play out in the past. We've seen it play out in this same industry with Chinese government officials, where extravagant trips are provided to government officials in return for business. I can't help but wonder if 3M China didn't learn some lessons from those prior cases because they implemented a system to really make this secret, which is really highlighted throughout the order. Among other things, you know, the trips were presented as educational events. So the officials all received itineraries that detail the various courses that these officials would be taking or educational events and seminars and trainings that they would be taking during their trips to the U.S. and elsewhere. On the side, 3M China was providing the officials with secondary itineraries, secret itineraries. They handed these itineraries out either in hard copy, in person, or through WeChat, which is the Chinese messaging service that's widely used there, or through other ephemeral messaging services. So notably outside of 3M's sort of internal IT systems. And these secondary itineraries were full of just tourist activities on the trips. 
instead of sitting at educational events, they'd be going to museums, shopping trips, amusement parks, and that type of thing. And they worked with external third-party travel agencies in China to make this happen and to help facilitate it. So this also involves a little bit of one of our favorite topics in the use of third parties, because the, I don't know if this really could have been done without the help of these travel agencies who various times issued false invoices to help create some extra funds and provide extra money for some of these extracurricular activities that happened in these secondary itineraries. So what 3M did in terms of taking the officials on these trips is actually very, very similar to previous cases from back 2010 forward, but they did a much better job, at least initially, at hiding. And this was all very secret. And I think as we move into the opinion procedure release and start contrasting them, that's going to be one of the big differentiators. Let me focus on the travel agents because actually we've seen them involved in other corruption schemes. Probably the most notable was GlaxoSmithKline or TSK back in 2013 and 2014. And when I initially read this, I wondered, we need to move travel agents in China to a higher level of risk. To the extent you still can do due diligence in China, that was certainly one thing. But the thing that struck me was the obvious intentional dissembling to the 3M compliance program, if I can say that delicately, so that even if they fully wrote this up and sent it in for pre-approval, it looks like they just blatantly lied to the compliance function. And it brings up the always difficult question, well, if your business folks are going to do that to you, how can you try to protect yourself? And this is where I thought the enforcement action really gave us some solid information. And that was around the four indicia that the SEC listed to show these activities were not legitimate. And that's where tourist activities were scheduled at the same times as the educational activities. The educational events were in English. and The officials neither understood English nor had adequate translation services. The government officials missed whole days of the educational events. And the foreign government officials requested the tourism activities. While it might be easier to use those on a retrospective basis where you're testing or even auditing. I think you can use that really proactively to test what you're being told by the business unit. The one that struck me was the translations. I don't know if you've spoken overseas, but I've spoken in Brazil where they literally had simultaneous translations and that was built into the event. It went both ways. So when I sat in an audience, I was able to listen in English. I've been in meetings in China where I had a translator whispering in my ear, literally, you know, in a business negotiation. So I know it can be done, but they didn't have any of that. And something as simple as the conferences from eight to four, when you're going to be in Disneyland from one to four, maybe there's a problem there. So I thought it gave us some really concrete ways for a compliance professional to think about, if not doing this on a post hoc basis after the event to try to determine if it was legitimate, maybe even a little proactive in a true high-risk area like China. You're right. Looking at this from one lens, you could say, here are the things that maybe the compliance professionals could have done to look at this more with a closer lens. Looking at it and saying, wait a second, these are Chinese government officials. This training is in, this event is in the U.S. and Nashville. Is there going to be a translator provided? Now, looking at it more favorably to the compliance professionals, that's very easy for the salespeople to just say, oh, no, they all speak English. 
you're sort of stuck at that point a little bit. So there are other things, systematic things that can be done in a similar fashion to what we're, we're seeing a lot of clients do with donations and sponsorships on the back end to prove that you have done what you said you were going to do. Yeah. We also often advise clients when they're approving donations and sponsorships from a compliance perspective, that you get some sort of documentation to prove that the donation that you have approved was actually given in the manner that you thought it was going. And you can do something similar with this type of travel. I need something on the back end that is going to prove that these people went to this educational event. They sat in this event and actually did this training and they didn't go and spend the day at Disneyland or on shopping trips. And you can do that through sign-up sheets, although those are easy to fake. A lot of clients do pictures, which is sort of silly in some sense, but really easy to do. Tell somebody who's at that event to take pictures of the room. And you can show me that these people were actually in this room at this day. And now you have a nice, perfect documentation to actually show it. Yes, I think that there are things that could have done on the front end to question this more, but there are other systematic things that clients and companies can learn and take from this that maybe they should start doing on the back end to make sure you document it. Puts more pressure on enterprising salespeople if they're trying to run one of these schemes. Yeah, that's a great point. And you can even geotag those photographs. So that's a great, inexpensive way to get the documentation. And I think that would fully support any regulator's review of it. One other point that I really wanted to highlight with you, Mike, that was the use of ephemeral messaging by the Chinese business employees. And I'd like to set it up with, obviously, the Securities and Exchange Commission and CFTC had a series of enforcement actions around ephemeral messaging. And September 2022, we saw the billion-dollar month of fines. I think we probably equaled or neared that in 2023. And Wells Fargo and others were recently tagged for their failures around ephemeral messaging. That led me and others to speculate what might happen in non-regulated industries. Those industries are all covered by regulations. They're banking, financial services, broker-dealers, et cetera, who have very rigorous obligations around recording their own conversations that don't appear typically for U.S. public companies. One of the things that struck me was that the regulators, either the DOJ or SEC, would look at the use of ephemeral messaging as the lack of a culture or the indicia of a lack of a culture of compliance. I thought the SEC came pretty close to saying that, and I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on one, do public companies need to be thinking about their ephemeral messaging policies as much as regulated industries? And two, how might the regulators in the public company space it typically you and I play in, look at something like this? And is this enforcement action, any kind of lessons learned we can take away from it? One, I think publicly traded companies in particular should absolutely be looking at ephemeral messaging policies, what they have in place, how to manage this issue. This, man this issue is extremely difficult because in certain parts of the world, ephemeral messaging, however you want to define that, is used as the main way to do business. So there is a business justification, a legitimate business justification for using. It's not just, I think as some people think, this is a way to keep my conversations private. It's the way to do business. WeChat is the way people do business in China. It's very difficult. I have dealt with clients who don't really have email. They don't use it. Even executives at the companies don't necessarily have a company email address that they'll use. So it's a very difficult issue to deal with, but it's one that companies really need to start tackling because I think all indications are 
that this will start being looked at. I don't know that in the short term it's going to be looked at the same way as it is in regulated industries, but in instances like this, where the facts show that the thermal messaging was used for improper purposes, I think it's going to be highlighted and I think companies are going to continue to get dinged for it. And so we've been encouraging our clients to do an assessment as to how these apps are used by employees for legitimate basis and interests, try to craft a policy that works both for the business and from a compliance perspective, and then reassess, implement the policy, see if it works and go back to the drawing board if it doesn't. We're just reaching the tip here. I think this is going to become more and more prevalent in enforcement actions. And I think we're going to see this become a bigger and bigger piece of this. Mike, in the SEC and CFTC enforcement actions, once again, with the regulated industries, what we've typically seen is with large banks in particular, they had policies and procedures, but the policies and procedures either weren't followed or even the tone from senior management was essentially you didn't have to follow them. And so what I've wondered is if a public company has policies and procedures around this and they train, as you've suggested, and monitor, and they still have violations, could that somehow be construed as an internal control violation under the FCPA? Or is it really so small or non-material unless it's a part of the bribery scheme, it's not going to be too worried about? I think it could absolutely be construed as an internal control violation particularly if you as a company are aware that employees are ignoring these policies. I shouldn't say this because I'm surprised all the time, but I will be surprised if that is enough by itself to lead to an FCPA resolution. Most likely scenario is that it's going to be a part of a broader scheme. Now, what we've seen in the past and we might see in the future is an investigation by the SEC or DOJ starts because there's an allegation of bribery. The actual corrupt payment becomes hard to prove but they're able to prove internal control violation. So I can certainly envision a scenario where there is some shady dealings going on. The actual corrupt payment is difficult to prove, but the regulator relies on this use of federal messaging, probably among other things, as a sign of failure of internal controls. The final point was the amount of the fine and penalty. And here, I guess the thing that struck me was that the uh, SEC called out in their order the amount of bribes paid, which is in the range of a seven-figure amount, or a little over a million, and with benefits of five million. We hadn't in the past seen that sort of level of detail all the time we had from time to time. But did you feel like a $6 million fine was in the range for the amount of the benefit obtained from 3M? Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to do this assessment on a very granular level because there's so much that goes on in the background here. For instance, I think 3M self disclosed this violation, which can lead to varying levels of credit. And it's like they took all of the right steps in terms of remediation and everything else. So it's hard to say. It didn't strike me as wildly off base, partially given the fact that they did self disclose this violation. Really, the penalty was $2 million, I think, because there was about $3 million in disgorgement and prejudgment interest. If they self-disclosed and did all their remediation, that's probably consistent with some others. I did think one of the interesting things here was it may have been easier for the SEC to calculate the benefit or the profits from the scheme because one of the things we didn't mention is that 3M and China employees were themselves calculating the return on investment of these trips and bribes. They really made the regulator's job a lot easier there by doing the calculations themselves in these spreadsheets. 
reminded me of the sons and daughters cases where they actually calculated ROI on the investment in the government officials. Mike, I would like to spend a few minutes talking about a recent opinion release, 2301. It's the first one we've had in a while. While it didn't really break any new ground, it did have some interesting points. So maybe we could go over that and contrast that a little bit with 3M because there was entertainment and travel involved in this. Yeah, exactly. It's actually interesting having these two back-to-back here. I mean, they're within days of each other because they're really on opposite ends of the spectrum and kind of show the two extremes of trips for government officials and what's going to be looked at as entirely improper and what, at least according to the opinion procedure release, is going to be proper. So just very briefly, the background on the opinion procedure release, an adoption service provider wrote in, they are accredited to provide adoption services in a foreign country, wasn't identified in the opinion procedure release. And this requester noted that the foreign country had implemented a new policy requiring that certain officials from the foreign country would need to travel to visit some families of children who had been adopted. So requesters now going to have to pay for foreign officials to travel to the United States, in this case, to visit families of children. Sounds like a wellness check is what they were doing. The requester was going to pay for coach class airfare, lodging, what they referred to as a mid-range hotel, local transportation, meals, and they're going to do a few tourist-like things, you know, museum, city tours. They noted that the cost would not exceed $100 per person. And officials were going to be identified by the foreign government themselves. So the requester was not going to pick who these officials would be. And the costs and all times were going to be provided directly to the providers and the services, so directly to the hotel and the airline, and not to the foreign officials themselves. Any souvenirs were going to be of nominal value. So an itinerary was prepared. They were going to go to D.C., Boston, and one other location to do these in-house visits. And the DOJ said, we would not take any action based on these facts. So this is, you mentioned it, it's not really breaking new ground because we've had many years ago now, but prior opinion procedure releases involving adoption agencies with similar facts where the DOJ took the same, similar position. And I guess it never hurts to review and it never hurts to have new information. And I guess when I first read this, I, like you, thought it was a nice sort of bookend or contrast to 3M because it did show you can do it. And you can even engage in tourism or entertainment. And I get that question probably as much as anyone, particularly in energy. The energy ministers are coming to Houston or coming to San Antonio. Can we take them to a game? As long as it's not the NBA finals, I was asked that once. No, you can't do that. But yes, you can take people to a baseball game if it's one night out of five and understanding the cost of a professional sporting event these days. And this seemed to confirm that was acceptable at least in my reading of it. And it also laid out some of the really important indicia along the lines of, since we've known since 2007, a coach class, don't pay for girlfriends, don't pay for wives and family, have the foreign government entity or state-owned enterprise select the people who are coming. So I thought it was a good review of that. And maybe we could end with a few words about, maybe it's just the power of the opinion release procedure and Either people aren't submitting or the DOJ is not responding. I'm not quite sure which, but it is an avenue that is available that people can utilize. And maybe you could say just a few words about that. Yeah. I suspect that it's people not submitting more than the DOJ just not responding. It's an option that's out there. 
you know, look, I think there's a possibility that the DOJ issued this one in part because they were asked to, but in part because they wanted to remind people that this is an avenue that's available to companies who are faced with tough questions. As you and I previously discussed offline, for companies considering this, it could be tricky. You really probably already in a position where you feel pretty comfortable about what you're doing and maybe you just want that last bit of comfort before you take those steps. But I think the new procedure releases we've seen recently have all been on the further side of the line towards being absolutely legitimate and some of the earlier ones that might've been closer calls. But if you are in a tough spot and, you know, especially in situations like this where you're being forced, for lack of a better term, into doing something like providing travel to these foreign officials, this is a good option. If you get the right result, you get the right answer from the DOJ, you can move forward without really any risk of Mike, as always, it's a great pleasure to visit with you. And like I said a couple of times, I really thought the contrast of these two was interesting. The DOJ keeps telling us their enforcement action is coming. So maybe the end of the fiscal year will mean something in 2023. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Tom. And you will see more information about both of these things in our next month in a minute, which will be out in the next couple of days. Well, great. We'll link to it in the show notes. All right. Thanks, Tom.